Good morning, everybody, and uh, let's pray and we'll get started and you will see, maybe a few people will join us. Oh, how we love your law, Lord. It is our meditation all the day. Your commandment makes us wiser than our enemies, for it is ever with us. We have more understanding than all our teachers, for your testimonies are our meditation. I understand, we understand more than the aged, for we keep your precepts. We hold back our feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. We do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught us. How sweet are your words to our taste, sweeter than honey in our mouths. Through your precepts, we get understanding. Therefore, we hate every false way. Amen. Um, this word meditation, uh, it's kind of an interesting word. Uh, when we think of meditation, we tend to think um, like Eastern meditation, you know, Zen Buddhism type of stuff, where the goal is largely to em empty your minds. And so you will find all kinds of uh, apps on, on mindfulness meditation and, and, and these other types of things. And, and some of them can be useful for their own thing, uh, but it's not the same thing as Christian meditation. Um, there's a rich, long tradition of Christian meditation, and, uh, and when I say Christian, I mean going back to the Old Testament as well, what we call the Old Testament. Uh, and, uh, uh, and basically, in Christian meditation, what we are trying to do is not so much empty our minds as we are letting God's Word dwell in our minds. Uh, so one of the ways that this word meditation can be translated, it's, it's um, related to the word that is um, the cow chewing his cud. So kind of the image is, you know, just kind of repeatedly, you know, you know, chewing on an idea that comes from God's word. And then, you know, maybe it goes away for a little bit, but then it comes back up and we're like letting that thing roll around in our minds. And, uh, and just kind of chewing on part of God's Word. So, um, meditation is a good thing. I want to go back through what we, just really quickly, some of what we've talked about so far. Uh, Romans 1, 1 through 15, Paul is basically saying hello. He's setting the foundation for the letter. Uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17 key verse that starts us out here when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or as we Lutherans like to say, sola fide. Uh, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the, this is where Paul is leading us in, into this discussion about what is the righteousness of God. What does this look like, this, this righteousness that is from faith and for faith, and it gives life? What does that look like? He goes on through Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, exposing the ways that people try to prove themselves to be righteous. And in so doing, he, he's revealing the human condition and the human inability to achieve righteousness in God's economy. Uh, so righteousness in a, in a human economy, and economy, uh, it comes from the word uh, to work. 
you know, it's not just about money, it's, it's about the work that we do and then it gets connected to the financial um, rewards for that work. So uh, in, in human work, in human economy, in our relationship with each other, uh, righteousness is something that's actually achievable. But it's not the same and it's not sufficient for God's righteousness. So as we deal with each other, you know, we might find people who are really good people that we would consider to be righteous by the things that they do. But that's not the same thing as the righteousness of God, being righteous in God's sight. There's a, there's a, a higher standard there, holiness and perfection. And then in Romans 3, 21 to 31, which is where we were last week, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It's separate from the law. This righteousness comes to us only through faith in Jesus. It's rooted in his blood as a propitiation. Remember that, that idea of the mercy seat? That Jesus is the place that God meets us to give us mercy and to forgive our sins. And this righteousness can't be earned, it can't be grasped you know, by anything that we do. It is only received by faith. And because it's received by faith, God is both just in that he condemns sin, but he is also the justifier, the one who gives us a place to meet him in his mercy, to receive his forgiveness, to restore us to himself. This then changes our relationship to the law. You know, as we read through Psalm 119, there's all this stuff about the law and God's commands and everything. Before, we would look at those things only as curses, only as accusations. But in this righteousness that we have with God, we no longer need to fear the law and the law's consequences because that all fell on Jesus. And by faith, we've received his righteousness. And so we have a different attitude, as is reflected in here, where we love the law and we meditate on the law. So it's this whole teaching of God that's just kind of marinating in our minds and constantly shaping and forming our lives. So that's Romans all the way up to chapter 4. And we get to get into chapter 4 now. Uh, Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So we have an Old Testament reference here it would probably be good for us to know who Abraham is. So, pop quiz. What do you know? What are the highlights of, of Abraham's life? What, what do you remember? From Sunday school or church or whatever? So Abraham married Sarai, um, and uh, there are two times where he goes into different territories and says, you know, hey, so what you can do for me is to say you're not my wife, but say you're my sister, which she actually was his, 
half-sister, you know, so same father, different mother, you know, because polygamy was normal at the time. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's kind of a, that's kind of one of those less than great things that he did in his life. He put his wife at risk, essentially, because both times she was taken by the, uh, the king of, of the, uh, the area, you know, to be part of his, his harem. So, yeah. What else do you remember about Abram? He was obedient. He was obedient, yeah. Uh, in, in kind of this really rather strange way. Hey, let's leave. You God speaks to him. Leave the land, you know, that you grew up in the land of your father. Your, your whole identity is wrapped up in this land. And go to the place that I will show you. Not, I want you to go to Jerusalem and here's the map. No, you're just going to go and when you're there, I'll tell you. And then the other, well, the other great example of that is probably another story that you remember, remember uh, the sacrifice of Isaac. That's the other place that we really talk about his obedience. What else do you remember? He was probably he had two sons. He had two sons, actually more, because after Sarah died, he, um, he remarried to, uh, I'll give you a dollar if you know her name. Oh, I owe you a dollar, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, her name is Keturah. I don't have my wallet on me. <laughs> Likely excuse. <laughs> um, there, was a, uh, there was a man in my church that I served in Leavenworth, Kansas, and uh, he had a little girl that he named Keturah. It's the first time I ever really grabbed that name. But uh, yeah, uh, he remarried after Sarah died and had some more kids. But before that, there are two sons that are really important, uh, historically speaking, religiously speaking. Um, one's name was Ishmael, and the other is Isaac. So Isaac means laughter, gets this name because Sarah, and to be honest, Abraham laughed um, when they found out they're going to you know, have a baby. Like, if they first get the promise, they're like in their 70s, you know, and years are going on. You know, hey, you're going to have a baby. Um, by the way, God, now I'm like in my 90s. You know, yeah, I'm laughing. Uh, you know, and uh, um, he's like, why are you laughing? And so they named the kid Isaac. Laughter. Does anybody remember what Ishmael means? It, it's um, the man who God hears. You know, some, something along those lines. God hears because... Well, first of all, you got this weird account where Sarah says, you know, so we're getting old, and I know God promised you a son through me, but, you know, maybe it's not through me, maybe it's through Hagar, my servant. And so why don't you have sex with her and see if God gives us a son through her? This is a terrible idea, by the way. Just, you know, it's like, and, uh, and yeah, so, um, so those are, those are some of the big things. Uh, anybody remember his nephew's name? I, I think I just heard it. Lot. Lot, yeah. 
So Lot came to the promised land with him, and uh, he, uh, he chose to live in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah because it was the best land in that, that part of the, the, uh, the country. And um, Abram, uh, they separated because their flocks were so big and they didn't want to have rivalry you know, within the family type of a thing. And uh, uh, Lot was actually caught up in a war and carried away. And uh, Abram uh, got together his people and basically defeated four kings and rescued his nephew and the people from the other towns and restored them. And uh, it, it, there's this interesting thing where he gives a tithe to a guy by the name of Melchizedek, this shadowy priestly figure that becomes an image of Jesus. You know, we know nothing about his lineage and we know nothing of where he came from. There's some interesting guesses, but they're just guesses. You know, and the name Melchizedek itself literally means um, the king of righteousness. It says he was the king of Salem. Salem was from the word shalom. So he's the king of peace. So the king of righteousness, the king of peace. There's, there's all this Christology that's tied up in this, this weird person that we know nothing about. So there's one, at least one more thing that I think is really significant about Abram to, to bring to mind and tied to Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. It was this, we asked him. Yeah, he intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah because God says that, uh, uh, well, God meets with Abram. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm here to check out the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. And, uh, and Abram intercedes for them. Does Abram know that there are bad things happening in Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah. Yeah. It, and he intercedes for them. I think that's an interesting lesson for us. As we look at the world and we see bad things happening in the world, to intercede, have mercy. All right, anything else to raise about Abram? You have a whole, you have a whole community, and he says to God, "What if you find fifty people out of, I don't know, eight hundred? I, I, I don't know how many people are living there. Two thousand. What if you find that, you know, that, that small portion? And what we're, we're going to learn, what we learn from that is that, you know, God is willing to be merciful on a large group of people for the sake of just a few." I think that this speaks to how bad the situation was in Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, so you know the, the angels, uh, the, the two two men that go down into um, 
Sodom and Gomorrah, they go there and you know, they, uh, they're going to spend the night in the town square and Lot finds them and says, no, 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 uh, you, you come stay with us. And it says that all the men of the city gather around and they're like, hey, those two men that came, you, know, you bring them out to us that we might have our way with them. You know, I want to be really clear about this. You know, people will look at that and they will, they will say you know, that the problem is homosexuality. Um, there's, there's a lot more than homosexuality going on here. This is rape. This is violence. This is, you know, I mean, this is awful. It's human victimization at like the highest level. And he, you know, yeah, send them out to us. And, you know, Lot being the, you know, fantastic father he is, you know, oh, take my daughters. Like, oh, man. Do not read Genesis for, like, family dynamics. <laughs> it's a mess. It is an absolute mess, and it's horrible. And while we're on the topic of Lot and his daughters, you remember what happened after they were rescued, right? They go up and they live in the, a cave in the mountains, and they're hiding away because, of, you, know, they're, you know, they're kind of persona non grata. People are afraid of them. And the, so the girls are like, how are we going to have kids? I know, let's get dad drunk. So the you factor on family dynamics in the book of Genesis is really high. You know, a lot of times we look at these people from the Old Testament, we're like, these great saints. And they were, but not because of their conduct. It was because of this righteousness, this righteousness that comes apart from the things that we've done. It's because they believed God, not because they really had it together and were so good. Yeah, Ed? Well, the thing that always sort of seems left out of Genesis, but is, it sort of has to be true, if you start with Adam and Eve, and you end up populating the world, there had to be incest in there. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that, um, you know, when, when you look at that, it's not just Adam and Eve. You know, if you believe, you know, like I do, you know, worldwide flood and Noah, you know, and you're restarting with one family, yeah. you're still, you know, cousins at the best. Right. You know, so yeah, yeah, that is definitely you know part of the picture. You know, and uh, you know, it's the picture that the Bible presents of us particularly apart from Jesus, is not pretty. And I think that a major reason for that is it's always driving us back to God's mercy and grace. And we keep wanting to make it about the things that we do so that we look, God, look, at, look good in God's sight. But, but that's not the way that it works. In fact, that's my next question. You know, what are, what are Abram's good works? You know, and we talked about some of that, his faith and, and his courage and, and, and his obedience. And we could look at him and say, does he have material that he could boast of in terms of his life? And I think we could say, yes. You know, in some ways, he's, he follows God. He believes his promises and, you know, all of these, you know, amazing things that he does in his life. And no, because he does some really scummy things in his life, too. 
He's a human being. But when it comes to boasting, does he have anything to boast before God? And the answer there is clearly no. In Luke chapter 17, verse 10, I think this is an important part of the attitude to understand why Abram has no reason to boast before God. Jesus is teaching his disciples, you know, when you have done everything, when you've lived your whole life, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, literally slaves. We have only done what was our duty. You know, when you go to work and you do your job, do you expect the boss to be like waiting at the door on your way out? Thank you so much for everything you did today. No. I mean, that might happen from time to time. You'd be like, wow, that was great, you know? You know, we make a contract, we work for pay, and we're grateful for that situation, and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, you know, we did what we got paid for, and, you know, all right, good job. But in a situation where we're dealing with, with God, it's, I'm just a servant. I'm just, I'm just a slave. I only did what is my duty. I had to do these things. They were required of me. What's the big deal? They don't earn you a status. This is part of your status. You're doing what you were supposed to do. And so he really doesn't have anything to boast of before God, even in obedience. You know, if God says do something, what should you do? Do it. It's not, it's not a matter of, you know, well, I guess I'll do the favor. No, God's in charge, and he says, go, and okay, I'll go. You know, and, and, and so he's got nothing to boast of before God. In Genesis 15, verse 6, it, you know, it says that Abram believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So this is what is quoted in verse 3 in Romans uh, chapter 4. So I looked this up in the Hebrew, and when it says that Abram believed God, that word is, uh, the word is amen. He amened God. We'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, so he believed Yahweh, the Lord, uh, and therefore he believes his promises. That's, that's my editorial comment there. Uh, and he reckoned Abram's belief to him as righteousness. So... When it says that he believed God, the word for this, the root word for this is amen. Um, the forms of this verb, uh, because amen is a verb, um, can active, mean actively supporting uh, or proving oneself reliable or faithful. And in its, in its causative sense, it means viewing something or someone as reliable or putting one's trust in something and someone, uh, or, or someone or something to believe or to have faith. So when he 
believed God, it means that he saw God as someone who was reliable. He put his faith, he put his trust in him. And, and when you put your trust in God, it's, it's like the child who jumps off the top step knowing that dad's going to catch. You know, it's, it's that full, I'm completely and totally in your hands. So, Abraham believed. He amended God. So, why would we then use this word to end our prayers? Yeah, we believe that God's going to answer them. So, remember from the catechism in, in the section on the Lord's Prayer? That, that whole part, you know, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever, amen, um, which isn't actually in the Bible, um, that part. Uh, when Luther gets to that conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, he doesn't say anything about any of that, and they were using it by that time, by the way. Um, he only comments on the word amen. And do, do any of you remember what he says there? He says, so when we conclude this prayer, we say, amen, which means, yea, yea, it shall be so. It's like, I trust you, God. I believe you. We've raised the prayers. We've raised our prayers, and we end the prayer with, I believe you. And we're saying, God, this is all in your hands. We're, we're, we're trusting you. So Abram, amen, God. And God then reckoned it to him. Um, the uh, passage in Romans translates this as counted to him as righteousness. Uh, the word reckoned means uh, that he valued the behavior. He esteemed him. He thought Abraham's faith to be righteousness. The word literally has to do with how you think about something. So God thought about Abram's belief as righteousness. So he took Abram's faith for righteousness. So here, and, and all through uh, chapter 4 here, this word is translated counted in the ESV. God counted it as righteousness. Other translations will translate it as credited it or reckoned it or accounted it. The worst one to read this in is the King James because it goes back and forth between them, even though it's the same word each time. Um, because, you know, translating the same word with different words isn't confusing. Um, but the word has the sense of thinking, evaluating, and forming a judgment. And so God looks at Abram's faith, he thinks it through, he evaluates it, and he forms his judgment, and his judgment is... Righteousness. Not his deeds, but his faith, his trust. And it goes on in chapter 4, it says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks in the blessing of the one who to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. 
So we, we kind of talked about this before. You know, when we work, we get wages. You know, that's not considered a gift. There's, there's a transaction uh, that's taking place there. We understand we are using our talents and abilities in order to, uh, we're, we're trading our talents and abilities for funds, right? Um, you know, in, in different types of economies, um, you might barter. You know, my dad was an electrician. He did a lot of this, you know, where he would go and help a buddy, you know, and do electrical work, and then that buddy would come over and do, you know, masonry work or something like that. You know, that, that's the type of thing that, you know, a lot of economies, you know, do around the world. You know, you share the skills rather than sharing, you know, money. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a back and forth. You know, so it, it's not considered to be a gift. But we understand these things. We understand work. We understand gifts. We understand wages, and we don't confuse them. You know, so we might say that a person's work is worth more or less than what they get paid. In fact, most of the time, I feel like you know my work is you know more valuable than what I get paid. But if you're working for me, I'm probably paying you more than. I'm just kidding. But that is kind of the attitude that's out there, right? You know, I want all that I can get, but when I'm paying, then I want to pay the lowest price I can. Um, but in any case, when we work, it's not considered a gift. And, and so when we look at this relationship with God and we look at the things that we do, you know, it, it, this idea that we're being paid is ridiculous. And he talks about this relationship with God as being blessed. Now, there are two words, two in Hebrew, two in Greek, and they're parallel to each other, um, that uh, we translate blessed. The one word, uh, it's about God's favor and protection. So really simple Example, somebody sneezes, what do you say? God bless you. In other words, may God favor you and protect you so that you don't get sick. Right? That's, that's the idea behind that. People, back when we gathered at the rail, people would come up for communion, and the little children who were not communing yet, I would speak a blessing on them. You know, I'd make the sign of the cross on their forehead. Jesus loves you. May he bless you and keep you. What am I saying? I'm saying may God protect you, do good in your life, and intervene in, 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 in ways that are, are beneficial to you. Right? You know, and, and so that, that's, one, that's one way that this word uh, blessed is used in the scriptures. Um, the word in the, Old, in the Old Testament for that, by the way, is Barack. You know, so our former president, uh, Barack Obama, his first name literally means blessed. It's kind of a cool name to have, I think. Um, and, and the word in Greek is the word oilageo. Uh, it's where we get the word eulogy. You know, at, like at the end of a funeral, they speak a eulogy. It literally means a good word. God speaks a good word. The second word that means blessing or blessed, uh, it's, it's about being in a state of joy 
that flows from sharing in God's salvation and grace in the kingdom of God. So on the, on the one hand, it is about you know, God doing something to you. This other one means more along the lines of your life is good because of the salvation that you have experienced. Because of the joy and the hope that you have in Jesus' death and resurrection. The word in Hebrew for that would be ashray. In Greek, it's makarios. This is the concept in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. It isn't that, you know, God is there, you know, speaking blessings on them. It's they are in a state, in a, a, a status of having joy in being part of God's kingdom and knowing his love and salvation in their lives. It's also here in Romans 4, when it says you know, that, that we are blessed, or that, um, that Abraham is blessed, or David speaks of this blessing. The idea here is they are living in a state of grace. And that is a good and happy place to be. That's the way this word is also translated sometimes. You know, have you ever seen the Beatitudes where they're translated, happy are those? Yeah, it's out there. It's like, yeah, it's a weak translation. Um, and so these passages here are from Psalm 32. So if you've got your, your Bible, whether it's on your phone or, or you have a paper version, I, I encourage you to open up to Psalm chapter 32. By the by, um, as we're studying a New Testament book, have you noticed how much time we're spending in the Old Testament? That's important. It, it's, you know, it's one book. So Psalm 32 begins um, with these verses that are, that are quoted. Blessed is the one whose transgression, transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So, if your transgressions have been forgiven, you are living in this state of grace, the state of joy and hope in being part of the kingdom of God because your sins are covered. Blessed is the one whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Hey, I'm not counting your iniquity against you. What a joy to be part of the kingdom of God and to live in his grace. That's a, a, a happy place to be. That's a good place to be. It's just dwelling in his love and in his forgiveness. And that's the idea that's, that's, that's here. That Abram, or Abraham, uh, is blessed because of God's grace and his favor. He lives in this grace and favor. By the way, if you jump back to Psalm 1, Psalm 1 sets the tone for the whole book of Psalms. In some ways, it is a summary for the whole thing. And it's very, you could also say that like Psalm 119 is a commentary on Psalm 1, a very long commentary on this very short Psalm. 
And it starts out, blessed, you know, in this, this person is in a state of grace, a state of, of joy because of, of God's work and salvation in his life or her life. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law. That's that Torah word again. The whole counsel of God, the whole teaching of God. So he's experienced God's forgiveness and salvation, which changes his relationship with God's commands, uh, and they become a, a joy and a guide in his life or her life. Uh, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The word is constantly in this individual's mind. It, you know, it, it, and again and again, you know, this, this idea of being blessed is about having this right relationship with God that comes to us through his grace and favor. That it's all about the mercy and the, 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 the salvation that God does in their lives, in our lives. So being blessed and being righteous, having the righteousness of God, these actually go hand in hand. Uh, they're connected to experiencing and, and knowing God's judgment and the law on the one hand, knowing that the law condemns our sin, but then receiving God's grace and forgiveness in the gospel so that we recognize the terrors of what could be, but we experience the joy of what is. So we know that God could come to us in his wrath because of our sin, but he has chosen to come to us in mercy and forgiveness in the person of Jesus who bears our sin, who becomes the, the hilasterion, who becomes the mercy seat, the place where we meet God and he pours forgiveness and, and salvation into our lives. That makes sense? Because I'm looking at this stuff and, and I'm like, this is actually pretty amazing stuff. You know, when you really think about it, that, that we live in this relationship with, with God in his kingdom completely and totally out of his mercy and it's completely unmerited, unearned, and undeserved. It's all gift from first to last. Or as it says in Romans 1, 16, from faith for faith. That the whole thing is received by this gift of faith that God gives us with his Holy Spirit. So Paul continues, he says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So basically he's saying circumcision, uncircumcision, doesn't matter. What matters is faith. And so God gave circumcision to Abraham, to his sons, and by extension to their wives, 
uh, as a sign of this righteousness that comes by faith. That you are one of God's chosen people, you're part of this, this chosen people. And what Paul is doing here is he's laying out an argument for the reception of God's blessing, this state of grace and mercy that we can live in, uh, apart from being Jewish, and therefore apart from circumcision. He does this by looking at the life of Abraham, who is the first Jew, so to speak. Okay? So go back through Abraham's life. We'll go back to when, when he was still Abram. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, God says to Abram, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and then in you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We understand that last bit to be about the coming of the Messiah, about the coming of Jesus. That he would be the blessing to all of humanity because he's going to bear our sin and be our savior. This is pre-circumcision. Then in Genesis 13, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, and I will give it to you. So he's promising him the, what we would call the promised land, or Israel. Pre-circumcision. Chapter 15. Behold, the Lord, behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Uh, this man shall not be your heir. You shall have your own son, um, shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Pre-circumcision. Genesis 15 is a very detailed account of God making a covenant with Abram. And, and this, is, this is a discussion for a different time um, because there's some really important things that happen here. But one of the things that you need to know about covenant making at the time is that weaker people made covenants with stronger people. The idea being that the stronger would protect the weaker. But there were things that were done to say, and if I don't keep my promises to the stronger, um, bad things happen. Um, you know, and so, so there's usually sacrifices that were made and there was blood involved with this because it's the Old Testament and there's got to be blood involved in everything. Um, but uh, um, it was all symbolic saying, you know, these terrible things that happen to these animals, that's what happens to me if I don't keep my covenant. And when God makes the covenant with Abram, all of those things take place, all the blood, all the gore, except God says, basically saying, may these things happen to me if I don't keep my promise. God puts himself on the line for Abram's sake and for our sake. 
So that's chapter 15. Chapter 16 is where um, they try to fulfill God's promise apart from God. You know, uh, where Sarai realizes that there are natural ways to have babies, um, and uh, I have a servant named Hagar, and so let's what, let's try this. And uh, that goes very, very poorly. And uh, in chapter 17, we find the covenant of circumcision. You've got five chapters between the promise and then we'll call it the gift of circumcision, the sign of circumcision. Abram walked by faith. And this is what Paul is driving at, that this relationship, this righteousness of God, it wasn't about what Abram did. Abram's a pretty impressive and important person. You know, through Ishmael, he's considered to be uh, the father of, of the Arab peoples. Through Isaac, he is considered to be the father of the Jewish peoples. And through Jesus, he is the father of all believers. So Father Abraham, he becomes the father of those who believe God, who believe God's promises in Christ, and those promises are credited as righteousness. God looks at that faith and says, that's it. So, comments, questions, we're right up against time, but I've uh, got a minute or two. Yeah. What was his faith before the covenant? Gotcha. Um, that's an interesting question and one that is not clearly answered in the scriptures. So go all the way back to Genesis 1. You've got Adam and Eve, and they know God. They walk with him in the garden. They're kicked out of the garden, but they still know who he is, and they have their faith and their trust in him. They're going to teach that to their kids. That's going to get passed on to generation to generation. Some people are going to trust that, and some people aren't. And you know, it's going to get kind of diluted and confused, and, and people are going to believe some things that are not right. They're going to behave in ways that are, you know, terrible and that brings us to the flood and then you know after the flood you've got Noah and his kids who they very clearly heard from God right they've experienced God in a pretty incredible way and uh, they grow up and maybe don't teach their kids so well by the way mentioned Melchizedek earlier they think that may have been one of Noah's boys well into his hundreds of years old because people lived a lot longer early on. I'm not saying that's who it was. I'm saying that that's one of the theories that's out there. Um, and, uh, and, and so they teach and you get to the Tower of Babel. People separate. That's a big moment of disobedience. God says, go out and fill the world. They say, we're going to build a city so that we don't get scattered. So God scatters them, and as they go out, people, they, they don't stick to the promises. They don't keep telling their kids. This, this is a, a pattern throughout life, throughout the scriptures, that you know, sharing the word with the next generation does not always go well. Um, we, all, we don't always do a good job teaching our kids the faith. And, and it gets messy. And so 
and as time goes on, it gets more and more diluted, and there are people who believe, and there are people who don't, and we don't really lose, we don't really find the, the track, but it becomes kind of diffused until Abram. And then God calls Abram, and then we follow the story through Abraham, Abraham and his descendants. You know, so God chose him to be, in a sense, a light to the Gentiles. That's one of the phrases that's used of, of his children and his descendants to bring the promise that was made all the way back in Genesis 3 into being. Does that kind of answer the question? Okay. All right. So we have some people who are going to be in here for the worship service. So if you want to tuck tables away, you are welcome to do so. We need about 25 chairs. So let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we could be here, and we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would bless us through your word to have strong faith, and that we, like Abraham, would be counted righteous by faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.